Welcome to The Humanist Report. I'm Mike Figueredo. Today's episode is brought to you by HostGator.com. If you use the coupon code HUMANISTREPORT, you can get your first month for one penny. Pretty good, right? Well, on today's episode, I've got a bunch of topics that I think are a little bit crazy, actually. So we have a new attack against Bernie Sanders. That's a very conservative attack, but it's not launched on Bernie by a conservative. Uh, technically. Also, we've got some new interesting, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to characterize this. We've got some new, uh, inklings from, uh, Donald Trump's campaign about what he would do if he were president with the, quote, Muslim problem. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit reminiscent of, uh, World War II, but, you know, we'll push through it and we'll try to analyze it. It's, it's a doozy. Uh, <laughs> And also, I'll be discussing the Syrian refugee crisis uh, and pretty much how um, there's been a lot of Islamophobic backlash due to the terrorist attack in Paris. And I'm going to talk through why uh, we kind of, we need to calm down a little bit, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, rallying for war, we shouldn't be rallying to disenfranchise or further marginalize a group in our society. Um, so all this will be covered in the episode, so uh, stay tuned. A new conservative attack was launched against Bernie Sanders' progressive healthcare system. Which Republican attacked him, you ask? Well, for now, it's not a Republican who attacked him, but it's actually the so-called progressive Democratic campaign of Hillary Clinton. So Hillary Clinton's campaign spokesman said, quote, Bernie Sanders has called for a roughly 9% tax hike on the middle class families in a piece of 2013 legislation just to cover his health care plan. And simple math dictates he'll need to tax workers even more to pay for the rest of his at least 18 to 20 trillion agenda. If you're truly concerned about raising incomes for middle class families, the last thing you should do is cut their take-home pay right off the bat by raising their taxes. Notice the condescension there, how he talks about how simple math dictates such and such. Yeah, well, we'll go ahead and we'll do some simple math here and we'll see who's going to come out on top. So first and foremost, this is incredibly misleading for two reasons. Now, when you think about how much it costs for our current regressive healthcare system, it costs approximately $33 trillion. That's, that's trillion with a T. So... They admitted that Bernie Sanders' plan will cost 18 to 20 trillion. So if we end our old regressive system and we switch over to Bernie Sanders' single payer system, what happens? Well, we're now saving 13 to 15 trillion dollars. So not only are you able to fully fund Bernie Sanders' single payer plan by ending regressive healthcare, but you're actually gonna have a surplus. Now, second of all, according to Forbes, the average plan under Obamacare costs each individual about $328 per month. Now, the medium wage per person is $26,695 per year or $2,225 per month. So, Let's kind of put this in perspective. If you earn $2,225 per month, you're going to be paying about $328 per month uh, under Obamacare. Simple math dictates that that's about 14.7% of your income right there. However, she states that Bernie Sanders would need to tax individuals 9%. And, you know, if I'm using my brain correctly and uh, am applying my simple math skills, well, this dictates that... 14.7% is higher than 9%. So by switching to a single payer system and ending the regressive healthcare system, what happens? You have 
more money in the pockets of everyday Americans. And as a result, you raise their purchasing power. They have more disposable income to go out and stimulate, stimulate the economy. They can buy things from stores. Those stores benefit. They then hire more people. The economy gets turning. So really, if Hillary Clinton is worried about middle income families as she says she is, well, then what she needs to do is take her own advice as she did in 1994 and actually put forth a single-payer system. Now, notice how this is a Republican argument. They always talk about how Democrats like to raise taxes, but what they don't tell you is that they're raising taxes to benefit the middle class that will, in the long run, put more money in their pockets. Me personally, I think I would rather pay less for a healthcare system that covers ev everyone rather than pay more for a healthcare system where about 6% of the country still doesn't have insurance and they can die. So now, that's kind of my take on it, but Bernie Sanders' response from his campaign, it was devastating, and I don't think Hillary Clinton should ever mention this argument again if she wants to win. So here's what Bernie's campaign said. In an attempt to divert the public's gaze from Wall Street coziness, the Clinton campaign has launched a false attack on universal health care, something she has previously supported. The Clinton campaign received more contributions from the pharmaceutical industry than any other Republican or Democrat through the first six months of the campaign. So what is this false attack really all about? Either Secretary Hillary Clinton is repudiating years of advocacy for universal health, or she's playing politics with the health of America's families. It's hard to understand how someone who claims to have been a supporter of universal health insurance for years is suddenly moving to the right and attacking universal health care. Or maybe it's not. The Clinton campaign received far more money from the drug and medical device industries than any other presidential candidate in either party during the first six months of the campaign, according to figures compiled by the Center for Responsive Politics. She accepted $164,315 during that period. At the same time, she has accepted significant contributions from individual donors. She received contributions, for example, from two executives at Jazz Pharmaceuticals, which raised the price of a drug used to treat sleep disorders by more than 800% from roughly $2 to $19 a pill. What we have there is a knockout. You cannot recover from that. I mean, that is a devastating attack. I mean, the way that he fired back there, I mean, you can't beat that. How can you possibly respond to that? You're going to invoke 9-11 again, Hillary? You can't. See, he's really illustrating how our system is corrupt. He's illustrating how her position changes because of money in politics and its corrupting influence, but also because... She wants to win. So how does she win? She wins by attacking Bernie Sanders' policies. So my question is, if you're a, you know, if you're a so-called progressive as you say you are, why would you attack what progressives are fighting for? Because you're not a progressive. But I will say this about Hillary Clinton. She is the best Republican in the field right now. Out of all the Republicans, I'd far rather vote for her because I think she's a moderate Republican. And we've got two Democrats who are actually running, Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley. So in the end, I think that that response from Bernie Sanders was so devastating. We're going to have to play Hillary Clinton out. You just got owned, you noob. You just got owned, motherfucker. You just got, you just got, you just got owned. Ted Cruz, the human version of Squidward from SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh yeah, I went there.
stated that he will be introducing legislation to ban Syrian refugees from entering the country. He states, quote, What Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are proposing is that we bring to this country tens of thousands of Syrian Muslim refugees. I have to say, particularly in light of what happened in Paris, that's nothing short of lunacy. Now, seeing that his father was actually a Cuban refugee, well, he was called out, and here's what he had to say. You come from a family uh, where there was political uh, persecution, and your family benefited from the policies of America allowing refugees yeah. in. Well, you know, look, it's, it's not surprising that, that President Obama is attacking me personally. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what's shameful it, is that we have a president who, after seven years, still refuses to utter the words radical terrorism. So basically, his argument was... Obama's gay! Now, the problem is that Ted Cruz seems to actually disagree with himself because just a year earlier he said this. We have welcomed refugees, the, 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 the tiled, tired, huddled masses for centuries. That's been the history of the United States. We should continue to do so. So he seems conflicted. Well, Look, maybe I can help him out. Seeing that the Bible is one of Ted Cruz's main sources of inspiration, according to him, well, I decided to do a little research into his Bible and see what it says about immigration. It says, You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners, which is an immigrant, who reside among you and have children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Now, Leviticus states, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat him the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now Exodus states, you shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now there's about 50 more of those, so I'll go ahead and put that link in the description box, Ted Cruz, so go ahead and check those out, because I think they're really going to help you. Excellent. So, you're welcome, uh, but I'm not going to do this again, man. Next time I'm charging. Oakley doakley, neighborino. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between, it is now time for your weekly dose of stupidity. Ted Cruz doesn't like the fact that Obama is calling out the GOP for their fear-mongering over Syrian refugees, so what does Ted Cruz do? Well, he responds as any rational adult would. Mr. President, if you want to insult me, you can do it overseas, you can do it in Turkey, you can do it in foreign countries, but I would encourage you, Mr. President, come back and insult me to my face. Come back and insult me to my face. That's what Ted Cruz thinks he sounds like, but here's what he actually sounds like. <laughs> CNN decided that they wanted to blame not just ISIS for the attacks in Paris, but they wanted to blame all Muslims. You know, I'm yet to hear, uh, you know, the condemnation from the Muslim community on this. But I mean, I, you know, see. again, the point he's making is it's not our fault. But the fact of the matter is when these things happen, the finger blame is pointed at the Muslim community. And so you have to be preemptive. It's coming from the community. You've got to take a standard. The word responsibility comes yeah, to mind. It just comes to mind. You, you can't shirk that. Okay, so I think their logic makes sense, so le let me try to extrapolate this. So I guess that means that all white males are responsible for mass shootings, uh, all Christians are responsible for the KKK, and all of Canada is responsible for Ted Cruz and Justin Bieber. Thanks, Canada. Actually, now that I think about it, 
That sounds really stupid. Ben Stein, former actor-turned-Republican-ideologue, well, he thinks that Obama hates America. Why? Well, he has a really interesting theory. I think the question is, why is he so angry at America? I mean, why? I don't think there's much question that he does not wish America well. He has a real strong hatred of America. Now, is it because he's part black? I don't know. Is it because his... His he felt his father was mistreated by the British in Kenya. I don't know. Um, and we already have the Puerto Ricans. <laughs> yes, because the pigment of someone's skin is going to influence whether or not they hate or love America, right? I mean, <laughs> the stupid is strong in this one, to say the least. Donald Trump is really afraid of Muslims. No, I mean, he's really, really afraid of Muslims. He had this to say. We're going to have to do things that we never did before, and some people are going to be upset about it. But I think that now everybody is feeling that security is going to rule, and certain things will be done that we never thought would happen in this country in terms of information and learning about the enemy. And so we're going to have to do certain things that were frankly unthinkable a year ago. Now, what ideas, you ask? Well, you know, he talks about maybe closing down some mosques and potentially just destroying the First Amendment. And additionally, uh, he says he potentially is open to the creation of a database to track Muslim citizens or requiring that Muslim Americans carry a special form of identification noting their faith. So this kind of reminds me of some event in history. Uh, I can't remember in particular, but I know there was another leader that wanted to kind of identify a particular religious group just like this. Uh, I'm wondering if he's thinking of something kind of like this. What's his moral barometer? Where is it at? It's nowhere. I've got nothing. <laughs> I'm speechless. So there's something I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and that's Social Security. Well, I, I fully support Social Security. I fully support Social Security. Why the fuck you lying? Why you always lying? Seeing that Bernie Sanders is talking about raising the cap on Social Security and expanding benefits to people. You don't cut Social Security, you expand it. And the way you expand it is by lifting the cap on taxable incomes so that you do away with the absurdity of a millionaire paying the same amount into the system as somebody making 118000 You do that, Social Security is solvent until 2061, and you can expand that. If you lift the cap completely, that is a $1 trillion tax increase. I don't think we need to do that. This has kind of galvanized the discussion around it. So you hear a ton of different proposals. You see that the Republicans want to privatize it, which basically will and Social Security, uh, it will make it not effective. And then you have uh, plans from individuals such as Hillary Clinton, who she wants to, well, she implied anyways, that she wants to means test Social Security. I want to enhance the benefits for the poorest recipients of Social Security. We have a lot of women on Social Security, particularly widowed and single women who didn't make a lot of money during their careers and they are impoverished, and they need more help from the Social Security system. Jenny. And I will, focus, I will focus on helping those people who need it the most. You have to reform Social Security, and the simple way to do it is to make sure that the wealthiest don't receive the same benefits as people that are lower income. In theory, 
I think that this is something that's intuitive. I'm philosophically in favor of it, but when it comes to whether or not I'm for or against it, I'm against it for pragmatic purposes. Now, let's let's be frank here. You can't trust the Republicans with your Social Security. You can't trust Democrats with your Social Security because the idea of privatizing Social Security, well, it came up with the Reagan revolution. Reagan was the first one who really wanted to privatize Social Security, but he couldn't do that because there was mass outrage by uh, labor unions, by um, senior citizens and whatnot. Uh, and it's a very popular program. Now, the second attempt came from Bill Clinton. He also wanted to privatize Social Security. Yes, a Democrat. Uh, but what kind of happened was there was there was a big like committee that was set up for about 18 months to where um, they were kind of discussing how they would go about doing this. But thankfully, Monica Lewinsky, she saved Social Security, figuratively speaking, that is, because it was that scandal that had kind of got him to stop pushing for privatization because he knew that it would be a tough political battle and he didn't want to lose any more favor among the American public. So... What we have now is we have a new strategy to undermine the confidence of Social Security. So means testing Social Security means that it becomes a welfare program. Now, what happens to a, wel to a welfare program? Well, people hate it. The term welfare, it pulls terribly, even though individuals are in favor of social safety net programs, generally speaking. Well, when you pull them and use that term welfare, it's toxic. So if you transform Social Security into a welfare program, well, then basically you undermine the public approval for it. People will start hating it. The middle class who won't benefit from it as much, well, they will hate it too. And privatization, I mean, you just won't get the same amount of benefits. There are political scientists who have done the math, and if you privatize it, you get way less benefits. So senior citizens will be in poverty much more than they already are. So... When it comes to Democratic candidates and Hillary Clinton specifically talking about how she wants to means test Social Security, let's not fall for that trap because she knows what she's doing. This is a calculated strategy that's been in existence since the Reagan era. What they want to do is they want to divide people who are in favor of Social Security and mobilize the opponents of Social Security. I'm talking about the banks, the financial services industry. They all are trying to privatize uh, Social Security. Now, they kind of had a two-pong strategy here. Not only are they going to divide and conquer, but they're also going to undermine confidence. So they're going to say that you're getting robbed like Chris Christie did, where um, if you're young, if you're if you're my age, uh, well, guess what? You're getting robbed because you're not getting that money back when you're older. The government has lied to you and they have stolen from you. I wonder if you know that I know he's lying right now. That's nonsense. We have a surplus right now. Social Security isn't going anywhere, but they like to push that false narrative that it is. Now, furthermore, if we means test Social Security, as I stated, that will turn public opinion against it. But this is a really sneaky trick that they're doing here, guys. We have to be careful because by means testing it, everybody is in favor of that. This is technically a progressive thing, right? I mean, if you give more to the poor, you know, it's a redistributive principle. And that's what, you know, a lot of individuals who are more inclined to like Bernie Sanders or more inclined to be liberal or vote Democrat are going to be in favor of. But by doing this, people begin to hate Social Security. And when they hate Social Security, they reach their ultimate goal. That is to privatize Social Security, or as George W. Bush tried to do, he tried to partially privatize Social Security. So Democrats and Republicans alike are all after Social Security. Why? 
because of their donors. The people who will benefit and profit from privatization are the banks. Who's Hillary Clinton's biggest donors, that is? They're the financial services industry. So do you think that she's trying to, quote, save Social Security by trying to make it more fair and means test it? No. She is trying to start something that will benefit the banks and the financial services industry later on down the line. See, if you make it a means-tested program, then, you know, more middle class, more upper class people won't get it. And then they're going to hate it. And then slowly but surely, Social Security will be viewed as a welfare program. And then what happens? Well, this public outrage that is basically kept Social Security intact through Reagan, through Clinton, through, well, not necessarily almost through Clinton because Monica Lewinsky did, uh, but through George W. Bush. Because of the public outrage, well, they stopped Social Security from being privatized. But if we can slowly but surely undermine public support for Social Security, guess what happens? Later on down the line, not immediately, but maybe 10, maybe 20 years, public support goes down and then what happens? They privatize Social Security. The backlash that they would get for trying to destroy Social Security by privatizing it, it would be intense. So if they undermine that, if they get people to lack confidence in it, that's a big problem. So we need to be very weary when we start talking about means testing Social Security. Now, furthermore, Bernie Sanders' plan is the best for Social Security because by lifting the cap, see, if you make over a certain amount, I believe it's over $100,000, there's a specific number. Uh, I'll put it on the screen here. But if you make over a certain amount, well, you don't pay into Social Security. But by lifting that cap and making everyone pay into it, even the billionaires and whatnot, and still allowing everyone to receive Social Security, well, then not only do you save it into the far future, but you increase public support of it. So that's how you can really save Social Security. So don't let these Democratic politicians who are supposedly fighting for your rights lie to you. I fully support Social Security. Oh my God, stop fucking lying. They want their hands in the cookie jar, or more specifically, their donors, who are the banks, who are the financial services industry, Wall Street, well, they want to dip into that cookie jar, even if it's just partially privatizing it. They want the profits, man. That's what they want. That's what drives them. So we've got to be careful. You've got to put pressure on them. You need to make sure that whoever you're voting for this election cycle, you need to make sure that they know that you want them to keep their hands off of your Social Security because right now it's solvent until 2037 and we have a surplus. Since the terrorist attack occurred in Paris, there's been basically mass hysteria in tons of Western countries about Syrian refugees, and now people don't really want to let them in because they're afraid that they could potentially be infiltrated with ISIS. Well, Obama kind of responded to some of these claims, especially ones made by the GOP, who are now basically adding fuel to the fire and uh, inspiring everyone else to say the same type of talking points against them. Well, Obama responded in what I think was a really great way, so I wanted to listen to his response and kind of break it down. When candidates say we want to admit three-year-old orphans, that's political posturing. So that's one thing that I think is a really great point because I don't think people realize how much orphans there are from the Syrian civil war. I mean, I'll go ahead and put this stat on the screen, but it's insane. I mean, how much kids no longer have their parents because they were killed. 
uh, and it's incredibly sad. So by denying Syrian refugees in the, into the country, you're basically denying lots and lots of children. So it makes me sad that this is kind of one of the main talking points. But I'll let Obama continue. When individuals say that we should have a religious test and that only Christians, proven Christians, should be admitted, that's offensive. And also, it violates the First Amendment. Do Republicans each time something scary that they don't like happens, do they just want to wipe the floor with the Constitution? I mean, do they not care about it? I thought it was a sacred document. They're the ones who are always talking about, you know, respect the Constitution, especially when it comes to the Second, second Amendment rights. But when it comes to something that they are scared about or they disagree with, well, you know, the Constitution isn't so important. Well, I think this is another great point by Obama. First Amendment, guys. We can't do religious tests for these types of things because, I mean, the government cannot establish a religion. So by stating that individuals have to be Christian to enter the country, well, that's establishing that Christianity is the main religion in the U.S. And that's wrong. And as he stated, it's offensive too. Go ahead, Obama. And contrary to American values, I cannot think of a more... I could not. I like his politician uh, hand. More potent recruitment tool for ISIL. That's one thing that they're all missing. When ISIS does these terrorist attacks, they like when Islamophobia rises because what they then do is show these Facebook posts that you guys make or they show the GOP hysteria to individuals who they could potentially recruit. And if you don't know right now, they're recruiting children in Afghanistan. And one of the tools that they use is Islamophobia. They say, look, these people from the West, they don't like you. They hate you. They want to kill you. They want to wage a war against Islam and kill you. Not just ISIS and them, but they want to kill all Muslims. But that's not the case. That's not what America represents. So I think that this is a really potent point that a lot of individuals are missing. Then some of the rhetoric that's been coming out of here uh, uh, during the course of this debate. ISIL seeks to exploit the idea that there is a war between Islam and the West. He just copied me. You hear that? <laughs> and when you start seeing individuals in positions of responsibility suggesting that Christians are more worthy of protection than Muslims are in a war-torn land, that feeds the ISIL narrative. Yep. It's counterproductive. Yep. And it needs to stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I would add, by the way, these are the same folks oftentimes who suggest that they're so tough <laughs> that uh, just talking to Putin or staring down ISIL or using some additional rhetoric somehow is going to solve the problems out there. <laughs> so that was really great because... Um, these Republicans, they do like to pretend like they're tough. I mean, you talk, you hear about Carly Fiorona talking about, you know, doing military exercises on the border of Russia in, in, you know, Baltic states. And they're so tough. They're so strong. But when it comes to Syrian refugees, particularly children, that's who they're really afraid of because they don't want to let them into the country. Well, how about you guys do what Obama is doing? Grow a pair, be reasonable, stop stoking the fires of hate, stop demagoguing, and actually, for once, be a human. Stop trying to be a politician. Look, here's the problem with this anti-Syrian refugee hysteria, in my opinion. Um, the problem is that if ISIL is, or ISIS, whatever you want to call them, Daesh, whatever, I don't give a shit, what the idiots want is for um, 
us to be scared. They want them to be so afraid that, you know, we think that, you know, they could potentially infiltrate Syrian refugee populations. But when you do that, you give them power. They want you to be afraid of them. That's what they want. This is a small group of people of what, like 30, 40,000 individuals. I don't know what the correct number is, but this is a very small group of people uh, who has made tons of very strong countries, even America, who we have the largest, toughest military in the history of the world. Well, some of our Republican leaders here are completely just terrified of this group of people. Imagine the power that that gives them. Imagine the confidence boost. Imagine the ego that that gives to ISIS. Come on, man. Look, here's the deal. We have an extensive vetting process. It takes two years. I just did the Obama thing, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. Uh, but look, back on point. Um, we have an extensive vetting process here. It takes up to one year and six months to two years. And it is very comprehensive. So to say that, you know, we're not doing a good enough job, that's BS. So I think that we all need to really be humanists here and think about what's best for humanity. And what's best is allowing these people from a very war-torn country to come here and seek refuge in our country. And look, as someone who is an atheist, I shouldn't be having to defend religious liberty in this country, but I'm having to do that a lot lately. I, I disagree with Christians. I disagree with Muslims. I don't like religion. But I'm going to fight for people if you are going to try to take away their rights to practice their religion or believe what they want to believe, because I'm a firm believer in freedom. I believe in the First Amendment. I think that we should be able to say and do what we want. And so if people are going to start trying to take away religious rights, well then, I'm going to have to be on the defensive and come to their defense because I don't want anybody to take away my right to not believe in anything. So we got to be rational about this, guys. Stop with the demagoguery. Stop with the fear-mongering. Let's do what's right. At a campaign rally, Bernie Sanders made a call for rationality after the Paris attack, and I thought what he had to say was just perfect. So he states, quote, Every American has been appalled and disgusted by the attack against the people of Paris by the terrorist organization ISIS. I know all of us send our condolences to the families of those who lost loved ones, and we pray for the recovery of all of those who were injured, many of them seriously. In my view, now is the time for developing a serious and effective approach to destroy ISIS. Now is not the time for taking cheap political advantage of this tragedy. Now is the time, as President Obama is trying to do, to unite the world in an organized campaign against ISIS that will eliminate the stain of ISIS from this world. Now, when it comes to the question of whether or not we should still accept Syrian refugees into the country, Bernie Sanders had this to say. Now is not the time for demagoguery and fear-mongering. And he adds, what terrorism is about is trying to instill terror and fear into the hearts of people. And we will not let that happen. We will not be terrorized or live in fear. During these difficult times, we will not succumb to Islamophobia. We will not turn our backs on the refugees who are fleeing Syria and Afghanistan. We will do what we do best, and that is be Americans, fighting racism, fighting xenophobia, and fighting fear. And he's absolutely right, and I thought that his words basically summarize exactly what I'm feeling right now. A lot of people, namely Republicans and defense contractors, are really hoping to exploit this situation. What they want is to get a whole brand new war. Particularly, it appears as though they want a ground war in Syria with ISIS directly. Uh, and look, defense contractors couldn't be happier because at this time, you know, we all get really scared. Our emotions kind of get the better of us. And then we start allowing politicians to take advantage of us and start talking about maybe we do need to ramp up, you know, our troops in Syria. Maybe we need to start taking defensive action against ISIS. 
Now, the problem with that has been illustrated in full detail uh, after 9-11. We were all terrified. We didn't know what to do after 9-11. Uh, so we kind of allowed the government to just do what they wanted. I mean, George Bush started two wars, put them on the credit card. Uh, we basically allowed the government to erode our civil liberties. I mean, we have the Patriot Act. Uh, we have mass surveillance with the NSA. And what I think is trying to be done here by Bernie Sanders by calling for rationality is he's trying to get people to kind of take a step back and put this all in perspective and say, look, we're scared. We, we, we all are. You know, we're all trying to overcome this fear together, but we can't allow ourselves to make irrational decisions. Uh, and I think that that's the perfect response, because what you need during these times when we're all kind of overcome with emotions is you need someone to come in and be that rational voice and unite us as a leader. And I think that Obama has done a great job at that. I think Bernie Sanders, as well as Hillary Clinton, too, they've all done a really good job at that. But I think Bernie Sanders summarized it the best, in my opinion. So what I'm basically asking for is for all of us to not give uh, politicians, the greedy ones who are trying to exploit the situation for their defense contractors to start a new war, let's not give them what they want. But also, let's not give ISIS what they want, because what do they want? They want us to be more Islamophobic. They want us to start hating the Syrian refugees because then they're going to go ahead and turn around and use that as a recruiting tool to get even more bigger and more powerful. And as you've all seen, I mean, tons of Republican governors are playing right into that. Plenty of people that I know on Facebook, liberal people, typically progressive people are playing right into that hand. Let's not do that, okay? Because the Syrian refugees, they're trying to flee from ISIS. They hate them more than us probably because... Their entire country has been destroyed by civil wars, and ISIS is, you know, in part to blame for that. So what we need to do is we need to develop a clear and calculated strategy driven by facts and driven by intelligence, and we need to not base our decisions off of emotions and fear. Well, that's all I have for you guys. I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in each week. All of my subscribers, you guys are absolutely amazing. You are awesome people. And for anyone who is a new subscriber, I want to welcome you to the channel and stop by and say hi in the comments. I'll say hi back and reply. I think my viewers can, uh, they know that I'm pretty responsive to comments. Uh, so anyways, so there's two things here. So first and foremost, I want to, I want to try to make this channel less of me blabbing and I want to make it more um, integrative of the community. So I want it to include you guys more. So how I can do that, taking more of your questions or whatnot, um, allowing you guys to kind of upload your own videos to this channel too. However you want to do it. I want some ideas uh, how to make this more uh, of a community as opposed to me just talking. Uh, and furthermore, a second thing is next week is Thanksgiving. I don't necessarily know if I'm going to be able to film an episode or not. I'm going to certainly try because I missed last week too because I was caught up with schoolwork and had a lot of just personal stuff going on. Uh, but hopefully the following week I will be able to record an episode. But if I don't, this is kind of the warning. Uh, maybe I can record a, a smaller episode, shorter episode. Maybe I could do some more audio stuff. Um, but it, that's just kind of a forewarning to you guys. So I want to thank all you guys for watching. Uh, thanks to the sponsors. Thanks to the people who are donating to the channel. I'll see you guys next week, hopefully, or the week after. <laughs> So this video is uh, for all of my viewers who identify as uh, members of the atheist community. If you're Christian, uh, this probably won't really apply to you, but feel free to stick around if you want to hear the discussion. Now, as an atheist myself, uh, I feel as though I am constantly backed into a corner and am having to uh, explain my atheist beliefs uh, and justify why I am an atheist to my Christian friends and family members. 
And I don't think that that's something that's really fair because you don't necessarily see a lot of atheists uh, trying to, quote, preach to their uh, friends and family members who are Christian. So what I've came up with is uh, kind of uh, five arguments that I always hear from individuals, not necessarily uh, just within my social circle, but uh, from also from arguments from Christians online who will make videos saying that you shouldn't be an atheist or it's bad to be an atheist. Now, there's five types of arguments in particular uh, where Christians will appeal to different types of arguments. Now, this applies to other religious people as well, but since within my social circle and since within the context of the U.S., Christianity is uh, the dominant religion, well, mostly this applies to that religion. So now the five types of appeals that they will make is to logic, fear, emotions, even evidence, and condescension as well. So I'll go through each of those and refute them. So now Christians will attempt to appeal to logic and say, how could everything come from nothing because there had to be a creator? That's just logic. You don't see buildings without the architects. You don't see a house without the builder. So it doesn't make logical sense to say that everything came from nothing. Now, this argument is fallible because it's self-defeating. The problem is that when you set up this argument, well, you have to follow that argument through the end. So that means that if there is a creator that created the universe, well, then the creator of the universe had to have a creator as well. So that means that there was a god that came before the god who created the universe. But there's also a god that came before that god, and then the god that eventually created the universe, and there's another god, and another god, and another god. And so, if you watch Secular Talk, Kyle Kalinske calls this the fallacy of passing the buck. Because you think that you're solving a question, but you're making it more difficult for yourself, so credit to him for that. So that's not a very sufficient argument, because you just make everything more difficult, and you set up an even more uh, problematic hypothetical in your brain that you have to solve. So now, the next thing is that they will appeal to fear, and they'll say, what if you're wrong, and there is a God after all, and you live your life as if there isn't one, and end up going to hell? Isn't it rational to subscribe to a religion as an insurance policy? Now, that is an argument that, as when I was a Christian, I always thought that that was the most persuasive, but when you learn about the world, uh, you'll realize that there's a lot of nuance to it. So, the problem with this is that it's fallible because they are banking everything on one religion. So if really what you want is an insurance policy, if you really want to make sure that you don't go to hell, well, then there's 4,200 total religions in the world, and not all of those are monotheistic. There's some with multiple gods. So wouldn't you really follow through with that logic and subscribe to every single religion to make sure that all of your bases are covered? I mean... When you account for all these religions, why would you think that you're lucky enough to have chosen the correct religion just because you were indoctrinated into that? I mean, if you were born in the Middle East and North Africa, you would probably be a Muslim. If you were born in East Asia, you might be a Buddhist or a Hindu. So why is it the case that your one religion is the insurance policy that you need? Why not all the other religions? What sets yours apart? And that's something that I don't think many Christians can answer. Now, they also appeal to evidence and say that you can't disprove God. But this is problematic because you can't disprove a lot of things. I can't disprove the existence of Dracula or vampires or the flying spaghetti monster. I can't disprove these things because you can't disprove a negative. The burden of proof is on the individual who's saying something is a fact. Now, when you say God exists, it's up to you to provide the historical evidence that God exists or any type of evidence, empirical evidence, whatever you can provide that will uh, assure me that he's real but you can't do that and you can't put the burden of proof on people who are saying that you don't have evidence 
for uh, your claim because that's not rational. Now, they also appeal to emotions and they'll say God loves you and is looking out for you. And because of this, he is a God that is just and deserves your praise. Uh, but the loving God argument is also fallible because God killed more individuals than Satan, which is the Bible's main antagonist. So if you have a God that killed more people than the bad guy, I don't see how that is the case that he's a loving God if he did exist. That's saying um, that hypothetically, if we found evidence for God's existence, why would you worship him? Because he's apparently a bad God. I mean, if you read the story of Noah's Ark, uh, Christians like to tout that as, oh, we found Noah's Ark, even though we found 30 Noah's Arks. Uh, but they'll say, uh, look, look at Noah's Ark. We found the ship. That's evidence, right? That's, that proves God exists. Well, if all you have to prove that God exists is Noah's Ark, then isn't that offensive? Because God hated humans so much that he created. He gave them free will, but then I guess he changed his mind because they were so evil that he decided to kill them all, including babies. He wanted to protect just this one family, Noah. Kill everyone else, even the kids, even the babies, they're innocent, kill them all. They're all sinners, kill them. How is that morally justified? So if this is the case, why would you want to worship that type of God? The story of Job kind of compounds this because uh, Satan allegedly said, according to the Bible, that uh, Job is such a great worshiper, uh, but not so much that he couldn't persuade him to stop loving God. And God said, all right, deal. And so because of a bet that God made with Satan, he took away everything from Job, killed all his family just to prove him. See, Satan, look, he does love me. How is that a moral God? Isn't that a petty human emotion? to want to uh, prove your point, to be narcissistic like that. So the loving God argument, it's not very persuasive to me. And when you uh, take into account the fact that there are children with cancer, the Syrian refugee crisis is going on, 200,000 Iraqi citizens died due to the U.S. invasion. How can a just God justify these type of uh, occurrences? It doesn't make sense. So the loving God argument that's not that's not persuasive at all. Now, they'll also appeal to condescension. They'll say, since you were uh, once a Christian, you were indoctrinated into this religion. Well, uh, it's the case that God is like a shepherd and he will bring you back into the herd. Even if he has to throw you over his shoulders and break your leg, he will bring you back. So your atheism is just a phase. You're not really an atheist. Uh, but the problem with that is, uh, one... It's disrespectful because as an individual with my own cognitive uh, functions, my own interests, I have the right to uh, say that I believe that I'm an atheist and I am an atheist. Now, the same is true for you. Uh, you have a right to be a Christian and I don't have the right to throw mud in your face just based on that fact. That would be arbitrary. Uh, so the fact that you can't respect my belief and uh, accept that I'm really an atheist and I feel passionate about these beliefs is inherently condescending because it's you're kind of uh, painting the picture that atheists are like children. Well, you know, they've just gone astray. They'll come back someday. They're just like kids. No, that's not the case. You see, you're not very different from me if you're a Christian. There are 4,200 religions, as I stated. See, I'm an atheist to all of them. You're an atheist to 4,199 of them. So the difference between me and you is not that far. I just took it an extra step further, and I disregarded the one last religion that I happen to be indoctrinated into. So those are the uh, five arguments that I always hear, and I want to provide my atheist viewers with uh, some responses and ways to refute these arguments, because I think that uh, these arguments are wrong. You should never question whether or not someone is an atheist. You shouldn't judge them for it, just as uh, I don't think you should judge people for being Christian. So I just wanted to come up with these arguments for you guys so you can uh, kind of use them in your own social circle.